Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about spirits, holy and otherwise. Our starting point is, as usually is the case with us, the doctrine of the Trinity, often considered to be the most incomprehensible bit of jargon ever to be manufactured by the Christian faith. But for us, it is something far more, and for all Christians, it should be something far more. It is, in a way, the summation of the whole good news of our salvation and the wondrous nature of God himself. But even for the best of Trinitarians, sometimes it's hard to remember that there's a third fellow hanging out there in the wings, that it isn't just father and son, one in heaven and one on earth, but there's this other one, the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the problem that we have even now trying to figure out who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, and why this guy matters so much, um, this problem dates way back to the early church. It was, you know, a struggle to get the Son acclaimed as truly divine, as we heard in our episode on Athanasius. But it was only then that people kind of stopped and went, well, wait, if the Son is divine, what about the spirits? Uh, how do we actually get all the way to a doctrine of the Trinity? That's putting it a little bit simplistically. But we have, fortunately, Dad here to tell us the whole story about how a full-blown Trinitarianism is not incomprehensible. It is not a math problem. It is, in fact, the very distinctive and profound doctrine of God that comes out of the out of the New Testament and is by no means rewarmed Platonism. Dad, why don't you tell us why that is the case? Well, let's begin with the fact that there was a Platonic doctrine of the of a Trinity or a triad, um, and its intelligibility was something of great significance for Greek-speaking, especially for Greek-speaking uh, early Christians and their non-believing uh, comrades and compatriots of that period of time. So let's just begin with a little sketch of the what is called by scholars the Neoplatonic doctrine of the Trinity as a rational or philosophical view and then, in light of that, we'll discover just how significantly uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity critiques and overcomes the Platonic view with its own kind of intelligibility. So that was a little complicated statement I just made there. But what I want to say is, first of all, ancient philosophers didn't find the notion of a divine triad unintelligible. It was the apex of late Platonist philosophy. And it goes something like this. We intelligent beings live here below in the world of becoming. And we participate in the order of the universe or the cosmos with our minds. Our minds can trace out forms and, and uh, structures and principles and logics. And so that part of us that can grasp the order uh, in the diversity of the manifold uh, uh, creation, that principle in us is divine, our minds. Our minds participate in divinity. And so when we reflect on this, we come up with the following idea of divinity. Behind all the many manifestations of reality, ultimately it all has to go back to a single one who is absolutely one and non-multiple in any sense. And that is what true divinity is in and of itself, the one, not in any respect, the many. 
So that's your first principle. You could make a, a, a visual here and say, that's sort of like God the Father. And I think that's kind of what people instinctively think that God is, that God is a one thing. I mean, well, I, maybe I should say Westerners generally of who live in the civilizations of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism tend to think that if God is anything, God is this oneness apart from any multiplicity or or engagement with the world or compromised by it. Exactly. And that's what makes God God, is that God is one, not many. And everything else is many, not one. Um, and uh, you're right. Uh, the, so far from being dead, the Platonic idea of divinity is still alive and well, though it's not recognized by many people. It's kind of a Unitarian theology, as we'll see in a minute. I think I, I often recognize that Platonism is like the fallback religion of Western civilization, even though it's been ages since anyone studied Plato or Plotinus closely. Somehow it's just like the inheritance you get by the sheer fact of being a Westerner. I think that's there's a lot of truth in that, absolutely. Though there's interesting also... Um, parallels between Platonism and some of the Eastern religions, but we're not, we don't need to go into that right now. So here you, so your first step is I have mind, I trace out the logic, the principles, the structures, the forms of manifold reality. And because I can see that, my mind participates in the divinity that lends order to the chaos of material reality. And as I reflect on that, I'm led up, so to speak, the great chain of being. I'm led to the absolute one at the very top of the chain, right, who is God absolutely without any difference in itself at all whatsoever. Just God is God. But then you've come to that insight, but then you have a problem, don't you? How is this undifferentiated, absolute, single, only oneness related to the world that we live in? Because really, it shouldn't be at all if it's really what it is. Right. It shouldn't be at all. It should be utterly apophatic, is what the scholars would say. Why don't you define apophatic there quickly? Un incomprehensible, unintelligible, not anything our finite minds can grasp. That would be opposed to cataphatic, which would be a notion that God makes God's self known uh, in a, the event of revelation. Not that we can grasp God by our own powers, but that God, in God's power, cataphatically makes himself known. Right. Kata is the Greek prefix that means downward movement, so that cataphatic is revelation downward toward us. Right. And op, uh, apophatic is apo, which is away from, right? away from a phenomenal appearance appearing in our world. So you have this problem. You've come to the idea of the absolute God, who's not in any sense part of the material world. Uh, but then how is God related to the material world? And what Platonist said was that there is a first reflection of God. God in thinking God in the very thought of God thinking God, replicates God. And this replica, this thought of God, is the second deity, the second God. And that is the thought of God, which is the rationality of the whole cosmic order. 
So the Platonists then had an absolute God unrelated to the world, but then by this act, mental act, intellectual act of thinking, God thinking God, a replica of God is created, the thought of God. That sounds suspiciously Arian, but I can see how it would have been useful to try to figure out the father-son relationship too. Right. It, it, in fact, that's, it's, it's pure Arianism as uh, we can go back to our discussion of the Nicene Creed. That's how Arius was actually thinking. That's why he had to deny that there was a time when the son did not exist before God, the absolute God, thought God and created the replica. Right. And I guess there's no way in that, in that schema for the, the replica or the thought issuing from the mind to be anything other than subsequent and lesser. There's just no way you could conceivably say, like, the thought is equal to the mind that produced it. No, it's not. It's a replica. It's a copy. Right. And that's it's it, it hasn't a metaphysically or ontologically derivative status. Right. Right. OK. All right. So now you've got let's use the word logos. You've got the absolute God and God's rationality as that's replicated uh, in this second God. And the logos then uh, is the. reason or rationality that courses through the creation, uh, giving structure and form and organization and and, uh, uh, order and purpose to all created things. So that's how the absolute God relates God's self to the manifold physical world. Okay, but you still have a problem here. Oh no, another one. Yep. What about the material world, how is, if that's not God and it's multiple and it's chaotic, uh, what is that? Answer, it's co-eternal with God. Really? Yeah. Matter is as eternal as God is. That seems wildly implausible, but okay. Draw me along. Tell me how it works. Well, the point is, is that even with this idea of absolute transcendence in Platonism, there's finally a very deep metaphysical dualism. There are two eternities, the intellectual eternity of God and his replica, Logos, and the material eternity of the visible phenomenal order, and they just exist eternally side by side. And so that, notwithstanding that deep dualism, then uh, another question arises. If the Logos imposes structure, order, and form on the material world co-equally eternal to the divinity, how does the material world come to life? How is it animated? How is it a living being as the cosmos obviously is? to the ancient Platonists. You mean like the principle of, of life, like right, the, animals that breathe and plants that grow in the seasons and things like exactly. that. Exactly. Where does the principle of life come from? And here they have the concept of, uh, in Greek, psyche, which comes to English as soul. Oh, like psychology. Right. But here we have to make a distinction because mind is the equivalent of the logos, but soul is the equivalent of the animating spirit, the life-giving spirit that makes 
material things, living beings. So would that have been, by early Christians, made a parallel to the nephesh that's put inside Adam in Genesis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Platonism uh, had, on its own terms, developed this kind of triad. Absolute God mediating logos, the replica, the rationality that informs matter, and spirit, the animating, life-giving principle that makes some material formed pieces of matter living beings. Right. And your word animating is, is helpful there because it comes from Latin anima, which means spirit, that life life force. Exactly. Right. Or spirited beings, you could say. Right. Animals, in fact. Animals. Exactly right. So there you have the Platonic Trinity, right? You see that this it's not an unintelligible or stupid idea by any means. It, in fact, for ancients, it made great sense out of the world. So much so that the early church father Origen uh, was deeply informed by this Neoplatonic philosophy. In fact, one of his pagan critics, Porphyry, famously said about Origen, he writes like a Christian, but he thinks like one of us. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't Porphyry Plotinus's student? Yeah, right. Right, so there's a really close connection there. And Plotinus is the father of what we call Neoplata- Neoplatonism, exactly. the, the rebooted Platonism of the philosophical order. And there's a relationship here to the notorious thinking for which uh, Origen's theology in several generations later was condemned by the church. It was held that the pupils of Origen taught universal salvation, in their language, apokatastasis, the reconciliation of all things. And the scheme went something like this, that God, uh, through the replica logos and the animating spirit, descended in a great chain of being to inform material reality into this beautiful ordered cosmos that we see all the way to the nadir of descent in the material creation, which Origen identified with Christ, the incarnation. And then, having, having hit bottom, the whole creation now is climbing back up the great chain of being to God. It's all being reconnected to God. So you have this picture of a cascading descent through the Logos and the Spirit, filling up the creation and forming it, reaching its nadar in the Incarnation, and from there, from the Ascension onward, rising back up. And so all the many things would finally be gathered up together and reconciled and restored to unity with God. Like a cosmic yo-yo. Like a cosmic yo-yo. So it doesn't sound in that case that salvation is an act of mercy. It sounds like an inevitable unfolding of metaphysics. Yes, which is what it was for the Platon, uh, for the Platonists, right? That's exactly what it was for the Platonists, which is why the Platonists, in spite of their dualism, are not Gnostics. It's very important to get this point because this is really kind of an optimistic worldview that every that that's progress and salvation and uh, 
final unity are built into the very nature of things, and everything's headed up back upward to unity with the divine. Well, that sounds like it still has bridges in Western civilization, too. Yes, of course it does. That's why we're taking so much time at the beginning to lay all this out. So um, the subordinationism in Origen's theology built on this schema, schema is a pretty significant thing. God the Father is strictly not Father. Father is just a metaphor for the first principle because God absolutely is God as utterly unknowable and unknown beyond all conceptuality, who relates to the material world with his replica logos and animates the material world with a spirit of life. And so logos and spirit are each subordinate one to the other and both to the absolute God. But they do bestow a kind of goodness and graciousness upon the material world that Gnostics would have denied to it entirely. So I can see that Platonism, Neoplatonism, would have seen like a definite step in the right direction away from Gnosticism in the early church's struggle to understand its own teaching. Exactly. And that's exactly why when Augustine, St. Augustine in the West, had spent 10 years with the Gnostic sect of the Manichees, uh, it was with the help of this Platonic philosophy that he extricated himself uh, from the Gnostic teaching that the material world was inherently evil and that, and so forth. We go into Augustine some other time, but that's exactly right. Uh, Platonism helped early Christians fend off Gnosticism. Okay, so there you have a perfectly intelligible philosophical doctrine of the Trinity that comes from ancient, middle, and Neoplatonism. What's not to love? Everything except that it's not the gospel. <laughs> well, I guess that's a pretty serious flaw. Tell us how it's not the gospel, right. then, Dad. So what happened, as we recalling our episode on the Nicene Creed, is when Arius articulated the deep truth of Platonic theology, that there was a time when the Logos did not exist. There was when he was not. And that the absolute God neither begets nor is begotten, because any kind of movement or development or change like that is unthinkably applied to the absolute one in whom there can be no kind of movement or change, right? And so the Son is ontologically creature, not creator. He may be the first and best creature of all. He might be the very replica of God. But when you draw the line between creature and creator, the Logos is creature as replica, not as original. And so... For the sake of our salvation, Athanasius and his party said, if we do not meet true God in the man Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ needs a Savior and cannot be our Savior. Only God can reconcile sinners with God. Only God can give life to the dead. Only God can give a sacrifice 
that actually works to reconcile and give life. And so when we meet the man, Jesus Christ, somehow by a mystery unfathomable, we are meeting very God. So the Nicene Creed says, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Well, that does sound a lot more like the gospel than the Neoplatonic version. That's right, it does. The Platonic version is basically a cosmos piety, a kind of natural piety that looks optimistically upon the beautiful order of the world and accepts its tragedies as part of a package deal. <laughs> it's still so much with us. Oh my goodness. The more you describe it, the more I'm just, even though I was already convinced it was the background religion, it just, it more and more and more, it still is. It is the background religion of the Western world. So when you think about this, what finally, in the Platonic scheme, what finally completes the picture? Co-eternal with the eternal God, the Father, is the eternal material world. And the Logos, Son, and Spirit are mediating angelic figures between these two eternal principles. Unchanging eternal God, uh, changing eternal chaotic matter. So if you say what completes the scheme, what's at the nadar? Eternal chaos, eternal material chaos. After it was clear that for the sake of the gospel, we couldn't go with this kind of subordinationism. We had to say, whatever the Father is, so also the Son is. They are of one and the same being eternally. Then the dilemma arises. Well, what about the biblical witness to the Spirit? It's taken us a long time to get here, a half an hour and 20 minutes into the show, but we finally got into the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit's used to that kind of treatment, yeah, to be right. honest. Yeah, he's always the follow-up guy, right? <laughs> so here, here you have this dilemma that's created by the victory, a gradual victory of Athanasius's contention for the true personal deity of the eternal Son, the Logos. Okay, if Father and Son are equally persons, and equally divine, equal divine persons. What do you do with the biblical witness to the Holy Spirit? Now here I think you have a really interesting, also you're saying how uh, close to home this is for us nowadays. How many Christians think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal source of energy, like a shock of electricity coursing through you that gets you going. I think an awful lot of Christians think that the Spirit is some kind of jolt of energy that they can perceive or intuit or feel inside of him. Like a divine battery. Yeah, a char yeah that gives you a charge or causes a feeling in you or something like that, or is the feeling in you. I feel the Spirit, you know, that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that properly understood. But basically, what happens in a lot of Christianity is the Spirit gets reduced to an impersonal source of energy. So you could say, like the ancient Platonists thought about the soul. Dogs have soul, cats have soul, cows have soul. Trees have soul, butterflies have soul, because they're all living beings. They have that 
animating energy coursing through them that makes them alive and not dead. And so also human beings have that animating energy that makes them alive and not corpses. So isn't the spirit basically just this divine surge of energy that comes from above, from God? Like the life principle. Like the life principle, yeah. And a lot of people thought that way about the spirit. Uh, And they said, well, okay, we can accept that the Father and the Son are both personal agents and equally divine. We can accept that. But the spirit is just an impersonal energy source. So they could get as far as saying that the spirit is divine, but the spirit being personal is the bigger stumbling block. Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. It was the personhood of the spirit that was a problem. And here, it's a, so, so the solution comes almost at the end of Athanasius' life from the old, eldest of the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, who wrote a treatise on the Holy Spirit. And he looked carefully at the New Testament's talk about the Holy Spirit. And he uh, identified the innumerable passages in which personal agency is ascribed to the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit decides to call Paul to Macedonia. The Spirit uh, decides... Drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Drives Jesus out into the wilderness. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says, right? And I I won't go through all the proof texts, but the point is, in Basil's treatise, this is what he argued. The Holy Spirit is not the platonic, impersonal source of animating energy. The Holy Spirit is a divine agent, just like the Son and just like the Father. He has unique role in salvation and unique things that he does that can only be understood personally. Yeah, to to play on the words there, if the Holy Spirit is a unique agent, then the Holy Spirit has a unique agenda, which is the same root word for us there. So this this act, action plan, it's not just a dispensable source of electricity or something, but is actually the Spirit is a person with agency and agenda that gets executed in the world. I'll go you one better. That's great, Sarah. I'll go you one better, though. It's not just that the Spirit has an agenda, because it's that the Spirit's agenda is what sanctifies and makes holy. And it's not an impersonal energy source that you or I or anybody else can use and manipulate in any way we wish. Right. Like Simon Magus tried to do by buying the Holy Spirit off of the apostles in Acts 8. Right. Exactly. Precisely. No, the spirit of the New Testament is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus and his Father. So you can identify the Holy Spirit personally by his relationships to Jesus and the Father, and you can identify his agenda also in terms of those relationships. Right, and his specific agenda is the the making holy and the calling of the prophets. And there is still a connection to creation and life with the Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, but it's that too is not an, an impersonal act of giving energy to, to dead things, but uh, part of the whole the whole big story, the creation, redemption, sanctification story. As the creed says, he is the Lord and giver of life. 
Right. Right. A giver of life is very different from being a principle of life, isn't it? It is, sure is. The difference between being a thing and a person, right? Right, right. Yeah, well said. So good. So this was Basil's great argument for the, not just for the divinity, but for the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So per, Holy Spirit is person in the same sense that Son Logos and Father God are persons. Now, one last step in this. Remember in the Platonic scheme that there are two eternal principles, the divine one and the material one. They're both there from eternity, right? And they kind of finitely bound one another. So a Platonist can always say, God is doing the best that God can. He's imposing beautiful form on matter. Sometimes it doesn't work out so great, but consider the material that he had to work with. We're damning with faint praise. Yeah. I sometimes jokingly say that to students. I might be a really great teacher. I, you know, I could be one of the best teachers in the world, but look at the material I have to work with. And they go, ah, <laughs> they start <laughs> scowling at me and so forth. It's clear that's in good humor and a joke. But to illustrate the idea here, that's why Platonists can always say that God is good and wise, but he's not all-powerful. He's not almighty. He's not the creator of everything that's not God. There is a principle that is equally eternal and opposed to God, and that is matter, the material world. How is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, then, such a revolution over against this Platonic worldview? Answer. The Holy Spirit, not the material creation, completes the triad. God is eternally the Father of the Son, Logos, on whom he breathes his Spirit, so that in the Spirit the Son returns the glory to the Father. An eternal perichoresis, the dance of the three around one another, in an infinite circle of love, such that God's life in no sense is dependent on or necessarily related to an eternally material creation. So you see there the indebtedness to the Old Testament witness that the real distinction is not between spirit and matter, but between creator and creature. And the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity actually preserves that witness in a way that the Neoplatonic one never could. Of course, yes, that's, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's exactly right. What it means is that the doctrine of the Trinity is the Christian insight into the genuine transcendence of God. Why does God not need a creation to be God? Because God is eternally God to God in and through God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no necessity for this eternal communion of love to have a creation. If there was a necessity for it, then God would be working out God's own, you know, ego or project or something, having a creation. No, it's entirely a free act and gift of love that there is a material creation at all. A strong creator-creature distinction emphasizes the graciousness of God and the generosity of God. And the giftedness of life and creation. 
the the sheer giftedness and its giftedness as something that is good and not fatally flawed by its being material. So, the doctrine of the agency and personhood of the Holy Spirit completes the Christian trinity in such a way that uh, secures the genuine transcendence and graciousness of God, the Creator. So I think that's a pretty remarkable achievement of the Cappadocian Fathers. Okay, so building from the Christian insight into God, we have a Holy Spirit who is divine, a Holy Spirit who is personal, but the very strong contrast that emerges in the New Testament literature is that the Holy Spirit is redundantly holy, which means that there are spirits that are not holy that are also operational. The Old Testament doesn't, there are some kind of evil spirits in the Old Testament and even a little bit of Satan or devil, but it's not nearly as central a focus as it is for the New Testament's distinction between a spirit that is holy and all the other spirits that are not holy. So why don't we um, kind of go backwards now from the from the early church, the Cappadocian understanding of the Trinity into its, its biblical source there on the specific holy aspects of the divine and personal spirit. Yeah, great. Let's do that. Um, I can mention to readers the book that I wrote with Bielfeldt and Maddox, um, The Substance of the Faith, in which I actually talked about this in respect to the Gospel of Mark. When I was a graduate student and in the seminar with J. Lewis Martin, and we our assignment was to read the Gospel of Mark in Greek once a week. Yeah, we talked about this back in our, our, our pair of Mark episodes. Exactly, and and there, you just it it the the Greek language just bowls you over with the insight that the Spirit who falls upon Jesus at his baptism, and then drives him into the wilderness to be in contest with the prince of darkness, with the devil, uh, and so forth, and then returns him into Galilee to proclaim the kingdom of God in word and deed, immediately puts Jesus, spirit-endowed Jesus, into conflict with, uh, in the Greek language, unclean spirits or impure spirits. And these impure spirits take hold of human beings and victimize them. They have a kind of agency of their own. They speak and rebuke uh, Jesus. Uh, Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are, the Holy One of God, and you have come to destroy us. Well, Jesus is called the Holy One of God because this human figure is the one on whom the Holy Spirit has come and abides and motivates him and moves him into this confrontation with the unclean spirits. And this confrontation between Holy Spirit-driven Jesus and people victimized and tyrannized by unclean spirits is the dramatic framework, of the, especially of the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Well, and so it's really striking then that 
to have the Holy Spirit is not, as the Platonic version would have it, to have this life-giving source of energy, you know, and, and oneness with the cosmos. In fact, to have the Holy Spirit is to be thrown into conflict because there are these other kind of spirits out there and they are unclean and evil and impure and they do wicked things to people. So it's not a, a happy neutral place. It's definitely a conflict-ridden place to be in, uh, to be gripped by the Holy of the Holy Spirit. And the root issue here is who owns the earth? To whom do human beings belong? That's what proclaiming the kingship of God is actually all about, isn't it? And these unclean spirits are spirits who have, in an unholy way, taken possession of creatures and alienated them from their creator, victimized them in some some way or another, with disease, with fear, with insanity, all sorts of things. That's what is being depicted in the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And now you can connect this deeply, as we were talking earlier, with the doctrine of the Trinity. Coming in the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus lays claim to these victims of demonic possession. Get the word possession? These unclean spirits have seized the property of God. They have possessed them away from their rightful owner. But through Jesus's penetration into their realm of darkness and his authoritative rebuke of these usurpers and his merciful claim upon their victims, Jesus is repossessing these alienated properties of God and bringing them back under the merciful and uh, loving reign of the Father. Wow, it's exciting, but also really frightening. It puts the world into a much less um, calm and neutral um, perspective than we're normally accustomed to anymore. And you can see that the the Pharisees and scribes and other critics of Jesus find the whole thing deeply uncanny. And they're very concerned, like, how can this guy have so much traffic with evil spirits, even if it's to cast them out? He's talking to them. They know who he is. And so it builds up to that also rather frightening bit in the gospel where they say, well, he must cast out demons by the prince of demons. Like anyone who knows this much about evil spirits has got to be working for the head honcho of the evil spirits. And, you know, Jesus is very sharp in return on uh, against them. Jesus snaps right back at them, you know, like, you, am I gonna, um, how could I cast out the, the evil henchmen of the one who sent them to work? No, quite the contrary. Um, not only am I not working for Beelzebul or the prince of demons, but that the failure to recognize that my work of repossessing, as you said, the alienated and captivated, captured um, children of God who have been um, under the tyranny of the evil spirits, the, the Pharisees and scribes' failure to see that what he is doing is in fact holy work is what Jesus calls the 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 unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. I, you know, I, I recently, this one came up in, in Bible study or after church one time, someone was anxiously asking, you know, what exactly is the unforgivable sin? Like they were afraid they could have stumbled into it by accident. And I'm pretty sure from the context here, you can never accidentally 
commit the unforgivable sin. It's a very conscious refusal to see that Jesus' work of reclaiming the victims of Satan for wholeness and health and sanity and mercy and to be in a loving fellowship with God. It's that willful, angry refusal to to recognize Jesus' work. That is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Though interestingly, Jesus says it's not the sin against Jesus. It's the sin against the Holy Spirit. Again, isn't that important to see that even in this passage, Jesus distinguishes his own person from the person of the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Whereas the demons called him the Holy One of God, correlating Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So you have this double-sided thing always going on here, that they're distinct persons, and yet they're inalienably related to each other. Jesus can't be Jesus without the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit can't be the Holy Spirit without Jesus. But Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not Jesus. I think people get often hung up on Trinitarian language because of like the usia and hypostasis, and there are not three gods, and yet there are three, and there's only one, and yet there's three of them, and it seems all very kind of speaking out of both sides of your mouth. But I always encourage people, go back to see how the story unfolds in the Bible, because if you actually follow the story and then the language used in the story, like you pointed out right here, it actually makes a lot more sense because there is both the three agents being named and yet their agenda is unified towards, you know, in the, in the arc from creation to redemption to sanctification. There is no, no whisper that there was like, you know, the Trinity is a committee meeting where people are, you know, <laughs> the three of them have different ideas and they have to negotiate and concede and like, well, all right, son, if you want to save them, I'll guess I'll let you go, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing. But it's it's much the, the the concept is there simply to to clarify and fine tune our thinking. That's what doctrinal concepts do. It's not there to be the thing itself. The thing itself is the scriptural witness to Israel and the apostles' experience of God, and what they experienced is this, you know, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was driven by the Holy Spirit to reclaim us from the evil spirits. That's where you see much more clearly the Trinity in reality and in action. Exactly uh, the. Doctrine of the Trinity is not a philosophical theory like the Platonic Trinity that we talked about earlier. It's not meant to make the whole cosmos shine with intelligibility. The doctrine of the Trinity, as a lot of contemporary theologians would say, is a grammar of the biblical narrative. Here you have a discrete body of literature, the Gospels, telling the story of Jesus. How do you make narrative or dramatic sense out of that story? The doctrine of the Trinity is nothing but a tool to make sense out of the gospel narrative. It's, or to put it another way, you could say the doctrine of the Trinity is descriptive not theoretical. Right, right. And so like we talked in our last episode on Acts, like what we actually see happening in the course of Acts is the Holy Spirit marching out into the earth to claim one by one all of the alienated groups of people back into into God's uh, arms. But the specific means by which he does that is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, who is again and again said to be the son of the father who raised him from the dead. Right, exactly. Three persons, agents, each with their own role to play, but a common agenda. So let's go back to the evil spirits a little bit more. 
the topic in theology that often causes people's eyes to roll, demonology. I think you have some thoughts about this, and so do I, but let, why, don't you, why don't you speak about it first? Well, they're kind of, let me say, they're, my thoughts about demonology are somewhat culturally specific, but I think um, the Holy Spirit's work in Acts licenses us to work in culturally specific ways. So let me speak first to our Western culture and then to some things I've seen elsewhere. So in terms of our Western culture, of course, we know that there's been a really terrible history of how uh, and everything from the devil made me do it kind of excuses to like the burning of witches at the stake to panics over, you know, someone working for the devil or whatever. And so, as I think you're going to say too, demonology is extremely easily exploited as a topic to target another person or group or make them a victim. But I think, in fact, the biblical understanding of the devil or of evil spirits should do exactly the opposite thing and force us to see the enemy is not each other. It's not someone in my family. It's not someone in my tribe. It's not the other nation. It's not the bad guys who live across the ocean or whatever, which is, I think, the human fallback position. is. I think, actually, human beings may be one of our most distinguishing characteristics of social psychology is that we always blame the wrong person or group. <laughs> probably probably we should start with ourselves more often. But I think what the talk about the devil is supposed to do is say, wait a minute, this is not happening on a horizontal plane. And even if we have genuine and terrible conflicts with other people, the people who are doing evil or that we perceive of doing evil, if they are in fact doing evil and it's not just our horrible projection, um, it's actually the powers and principalities of darkness behind them that are animating that. And I think even now, now, this is really important. We are still so tempted to other and blame. And a proper doctrine of the devil, I think, would help us see that that is exactly what the devil wants. The devil wants us to turn on each other and make enemies out of each other instead of seeing all of ourselves as persecuted by the devil in a state of sin and needing to be rescued by a gracious Lord and Savior. So that's my, my, my plea towards my own Western culture to, to do the devil right, so to speak. Right. You know, and I think what helps here, uh, maybe it helps, maybe not. Uh, I'll see what you think of this. Is I've argued that the figure of the devil is rhetorically necessary to tell the gospel narrative in a way that uh, is liberating and wholesome for people. Uh, and I think that for the very functions that you just ascribe to it, I also think that rhetorically necessary does not entail uh, ontological commitments or um, it does not require that we have to say what we think the devil really is. I think the danger with devil talk is that we want to say what it really is and that's exactly what gets us into demonizing people we don't like. And what we have to do here is maintain a certain mysteriousness and reserve. The rhetoric of the devil dare not be ontologized. It dare not be turned into a reality statement uh, that can simply be identified with any phenomena within uh, our human comprehension. Uh, the talk of the devil and the demonic is essentially mysterious. It is the enemy, first of all, of God. 
and it's God who's going to defeat this enemy, not us. I think all of those points then would boil down to saying the devil is rhetorically necessary, but I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> the right place to be apophatic, let's say. Yeah, I, well, I mean, this is why a lot of um, classic theology has talked about um, the devil or evil as nothingness, because it seems by definition, anything that exists must be God's and therefore must be good in some respect. I think Thomas Aquinas says demons are good insofar as they exist at all, because being itself is a gift of God. In every other respect, they're not. And I, I can see what that thing is trying to do. I don't think it entirely succeeds, but I think your point is that it can't succeed. And that also should function really more like a grammar than as a positive assertion about what demons are. Like, are demons personal? Like, does the devil have an agenda that would somehow be a mirror of the divine agenda of the three persons of the Trinity? I mean, that seems really hard to assert. But yeah, I, I think I, I think I, I like your way of distinguishing there between the, the calling the devil a rhetorical figure does not mean it doesn't exist. I think often when we say you know rhetorical, it means that it's not real. It, it can the devil, I suppose, can be real in some sense. But what that sense of reality is. Right? Right. I don't know either. And I actually don't want to study long enough to find out. <laughs> yeah, good. There's other better things to study in the meantime, right? Right, right. I think, you know, C.S. Lewis is really famous for his book, The Screwtape Letters. And I believe one of his comments in writing it, other than that, writing it was the most horrible time of his life, was that the two dangerous things to do with the devil is to deny that it exists. And also the other one is to pay too much attention to it. And that's, I think, the right the right note to strike there. Yeah. But let me now say my, my other uh, sort of cultural <laughs> insight to this. Um, a number of years ago, I visited Madagascar. I was a guest there to give um, some lectures at the seminary with um, Andrew, my husband. And uh, we brought our, our son and his parents along too. And it was a amazing trip in, in many respects um, and worth talking about in many ways. But the one thing I want to draw attention to is that the Lutheran Church in Madagascar has had an indigenous development of a church office that is not common in the rest of the worlds, or at least not since the early church, which is that of exorcist. They call it shepherd instead, which I think already shows you their wisdom and understanding what kind of work they're doing. It's not a, a dramatic power show of casting out demons, but it is looking after after people who are afflicted by demons. And I spent quite a lot of time talking to people about that because, you know, I'm a Westerner. I don't have common experience of exorcism or a kind of obvious possession of evil spirits. Um, you know, we often say that what used to be evil spirits was epilepsy or mental illness or whatever. And um, so I was really curious to see, like, how do they um, deal with this? You know, they're, although it's a, a poor country, they have heard of science. They have electricity. They know about bacteria, you know, and things like this. And so I talked at length to a, a number of people about it. And I was, first of all, really impressed by their ability to distinguish biological and mental illness from demon possession. They told me plainly, they don't act the same way. They don't look the same way. They don't manifest the same way. And in fact, a number of the students I talked to were quite interested in a psychological diagnosis because they said, okay, well, you know, sometimes out in the very rural parts, people have never had an education. They sometimes have a hard time. Um, they just say everything is, is evil spirit. And we need to educate them about what, in fact, is like bilharzia or, you know, waterborne parasites or whatever that get into the brain. 
Um, but they said, you know, we know, and they, you know, would describe to me a little bit, but they also said it's because um, their primitive, I don't know, that's not the right word, the natural religion of the Malagasy before Christianity came, and, and this is in their own words, was the deliberate invitation of evil spirits into oneself in order to gain power and knowledge over others. And so they would have, you know, witch doctors or sorcerers who would, you know, invite the spirit in. They would do curses and charms. Um, a lot of their religious practice was around the dead, about um, like rewrapping of corpses after a certain time elapse. We saw several houses that were built for the dead, which were far nicer than what the living people were dwelling in. Um, and so they said, you know, we know like in other parts of Africa, they had a more benign um, base level religion, a, like a creator oriented religion to whom the gospel was a completion, you know, like that, that the creator God is also our redeemer and sanctifier and that, you know, there was less of a need for a radical break. But the Malagasy's own discernment about their own culture is that we needed a radical break from what came before because it was evil. It was traffic with the evil. And so I talked to some students whose like own grandparents were witch doctors. And they said how important it was to cast out those spirits to make a very sharp break with baptism and the Christian faith. And that they believe that even now, because of this long history of inviting in evil, that many people continue to be afflicted. So as a result, they have found their major evangelical outreach ministry is exorcism. Now, again, it's not stagey or dramatic. Um, I went to a couple of worship services that involve this, and um, it's both men and women. They dress all in whites. There's always a, a just very normal kind of Lutheran liturgical um, preaching service um, that surrounds the whole event. And at the beginning of the exorcism time, they um, recite four passages from the New Testament, all of which pertain, pertain to Jesus casting out evil spirits and his disciples doing that in his name name. And then they do two things. They first go through the room and they kind of like shout and do these dramatic, um, like pushing away gestures with their hands and arms, um, basically announcing to the devil that, um, he has no place here. He is not welcome and has to go away. And then, um, people who are there who feel afflicted. And, and this is a little bit different from like possessed, like they're not colluding with the devil, but they are under the oppression of the devil, which I think is more like what the New Testament says and less like, you know, the movie, The Exorcist or whatever, um, that when uh, the people can kneel and then the shepherds will lay hands on them, on their heads and pray over them. And the prayers are extremely tender, as I understand it. They're, um, you know, um, dear Jesus, this is your child who has been afflicted by, by uh, the devil. Please set her free and give her new life. Assure her that her sins are forgiven and that she can trust in you. It's, again, very pastoral and evangelical in its orientation. Um, I saw the first one of these in a prison. It was my first time ever in a prison, and being in a prison in Madagascar, let me tell you, is a very unsettling experience. Um, but it was, it was really striking and beautiful that this huge population of prisoners came, you know, asking to be set free of what had afflicted them. And, but they can also be just parts of normal worship services, like the church on the seminary campus just had a morning service, and it included an exorcism. And I, I kind of got drive-by exorcised in the process because they did it, you know, this, this hand gesture thing to everybody. But um, I have to say, I was really impressed just by the sheer integrity um, 
and the the very um, I thought astute reading of the New Testament wisdom business, and they were not in any way like everybody needs this. You know, the whole world should be doing this. They were very clear, like this is what we need here, and this is why we do it. And it was a bigger piece of the whole ministry of catechism and pastors. And they actually, the the Lutheran Church there is the major provider of mental health services, which isn't just exorcism. You know, it's like communities and care, and when possible, medication. It's again, it's a very poor country, so they're limited in what they can do. Um, so it's it's part of a much bigger ministry. Um, so I have to say, I came away from this experience, if I can say it, being agnostic about evil spirits uh, rather than um, a total unbeliever about them, which would be my kind of natural Western, you know, scientific worldview fallback. Um, these people were people that I felt that I could trust in their own discernment, and it wasn't something that I could sort of independently either verify or deny. But um, I just decided that they may be right. It looks like they're doing good things. They know more about it than I do, so I'm just going to leave it at that. There is more in all the world, Horatio, than dreamt of in your philosophy. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Hamlet got that one right, at least. Got a lot of other things wrong, but he got that one right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what a fascinating account that was, Sarah. That's a and I have a feeling that that um, that kind of ministry is more widespread in the two-thirds world than we're aware of uh, here in the highly secularized and uh, rationalized Western world. I believe it is, and I, I think um, it's maybe not as well-developed as in Madagascar, but I, I have heard hints of it elsewhere, but nothing, you know, um, detailed enough to report. But as we're coming up to our hour here, why don't, why don't you give your what you want to say about this to, for us to finish up our episode here? Well, uh, you know, I think in, a, in the United States, uh, in our particular religious culture, the uh, excesses of the TV preachers, especially the certain Pentecostal TV preachers who have blended Holy Spirit rhetoric with the prosperity gospel uh, has done an awful lot to discredit the uh, importance of this third person of the Trinity in the mind of American Christians. Uh, And so how do you avoid avoid that kind of revivalistic, over-the-top, uh, what Luther called enthusiasm. Well, you revert to the more domesticated, platonic, impersonal source of divine energy theology that so many uh, American Christians simply assume without thinking. Boy, that's a real devil's choice, and I mean that quite literally. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah, right. Exactly. So how do we? How do we? I think the. I've said this many times, and I keep pleading with pastors to think about this. And your talk about Madagascar makes me want to say it again. How did Jesus begin his ministry? He came into Galilee uh, forgiving sins and healing the sick. Everyone is in need of healing of body and soul. This is the special work of the Holy Spirit uh, who is repossessing people for the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ especially mainline churches, need a liturgical form for outreach that is not the Sunday morning Eucharist for the faithful. Turning the Sunday morning church service into a circus on the hope that you're going to attract new people is a fool's errand. 
What we need to develop is a, we have it in a liturgy called the service of the word for healing. And I think properly done, maybe we can talk about this some other time, this would be the way to introduce seekers, questioners, doubters, curious, um, but above all, uh, hurting people. There are so many hurting people in our kind of culture. If we could make available a liturgical space where the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about today, uh, could have a ministry of healing body and, and soul, that is something I think is just desperately needed in our churches. Oh, it's so true. In fact, I've been thinking about doing that here in Tokyo because, of course, there are many unreached people here. But also just the, the pain and the isolation and the alienation is so huge. And, you know, it's funny, Dad, it, it actually connects to, um, in your systematic theology, you take the very unusual move of starting with the Holy Spirit, then going to, the, to Christology and ending with the doctrine of the Father, which is just the reverse from pretty much every other systematic orientation of the doctrine of the Trinity um, ever done. But I think your point is that, in fact, we encounter the Holy Spirit first. As Luther says, gosh, we haven't mentioned Luther yet, so we better get him in quick here. But he says, <laughs> he says, I believe that by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, so forth and so on. And I think actually this kind of ministry that is, uh, you know, spirit first in, in that specific sense of forgiving sins and healing and um, claiming for holiness and dispensing with the unclean, that actually makes a lot of sense to how we encounter and get to know God and how we even are drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, good. So let's let's promise a future episode on the service of the word for healing in which we go into this in great detail and give our listeners a concrete idea of how this might be developed in various contexts. That is a fabulous idea. We will definitely do that. But for the next time, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is give us the church and deposit us inside of it. So our next episode will be one holy Catholic and apostolic church, or as I like to think of it, the worst thing in the best words. <laughs> as I like to say, Jesus promised us the kingdom, and what we got was the church. <laughs> Yes, so there will be much to talk about. <laughs> much to talk about. Okay, not, doesn't, not as cynical as that sounds, right? Well, we'll try. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.